Hello and welcome to episode 304 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Well, it's been quite a week, hasn't it, with the death, the sad death of the Queen last week. Um, It affected me more than I thought it would. I hadn't thought of myself really as a monarchist. But like so many people I've spoken to, and maybe you, uh, I found it much more emotional than I thought. And then at the weekend, it was CrimeCon Glasgow. Thank you so much to everyone who popped over to say hi. It was so good to meet you all. It really was. I hope that, like me, you enjoyed meeting all of the podcasters present. Really, a nicer group of people I think you would struggle to find. I love hanging out with them. And eight of us recorded a podcast about our experience of true crime podcasting, which we will be releasing soon, so look out for that one. Today's story from the northwest of England is a familiar theme on this podcast, and once again shows the risk of sexual affairs, threesomes, and the dangers when for one party, it becomes about much more than sex. Before we start, a big thank you to all my supporters at Patreon, but especially the new members of this community, that is Chris Teasdale and Stephen Jones. Thank you so much. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. So how often do you get fixated on your problems rather than solutions? I know that I can be like this. And just last week, I had a very specific work issue that I just couldn't shake from my mind and really affected all parts of my life. It can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when it's faced with a challenge in life. And this is where therapy can help, where you can talk freely and openly to someone who really listens and make that shift from focusing on the problem to finding the solutions. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable and entirely online. You don't have to see anybody if you don't want to. So when you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash truecrime today to get 10% off your first month. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash true crime. Okay, so let's set some context for today's story with our guest of the month and year game. Top of the UK music charts was the classic It's Like That from Run DMC versus Jason Nevins. Casey and Jojo topped the US charts with All My Life and in Australia, the 10th best-selling album of this year was Madonna with Ray of Light. In the news this month, the Good Friday Agreement was signed by the British and Irish governments. In Rugby Union, France thrashed Wales 51-0 at Wembley Stadium for its second straight Five Nations Championship and Grand Slam. Linda McCartney died of breast cancer at just 56. This month also saw the deaths of American singer Tammy Wynette and legendary snooker player Fred Davis. And at the BAFTAs, the Best Film Award was won by the Full Monty. So did you guess the month and year? It was April 1998. Today's story comes from Warrington in the northwest of England a town on the banks of the River Mersey, about 20 miles east of Liverpool and 16 miles west of Manchester. As true crime fans, many of us when we hear Warrington recall the horrible events of March 1993, when the provisional IRA detonated two bombs in the town, 
which killed two young innocent boys, three-year-old Jonathan Ball and 12-year-old Tim Parry. Today's story centres on the Warrington-based Centenary Operatic and Dramatic Society. You know the sort of place I mean. I'm sure there's one in a town or city very near you. Maybe you're a member. This particular society was formed in 1901, originally as a ladies' choral society, and over the years produced a number of shows at the Brindley Theatre in nearby Runghorn and all around the local community. Societies such as these attract a variety of talents, and I use the term loosely, from those who would potentially have the ability to be professional to others who are just there for fun and let's just say their talents lie elsewhere. And Spice Girl Mel C was once a member of the group. Back in the late 1990s, two of the best performers in the society were a married couple, Chris and Catherine Lineker. Catherine joined after she saw and was impressed with their production of My Fair Lady in 1989. The following October, she took on a major role in Gigi, and two years later, she met Chris Lineker through their society. They immediately hit it off, began dating, and got married. By the time we pick up the story in April 1998, the couple had a two-year-old and a four-month-old daughter, and were living a very happy and comfortable life. Catherine, as well as continuing to take on starring roles with the society, had progressed in her career to deputy head teacher. She was hard-working, committed, and like all the very best teachers from our childhoods, popular with both her pupils and their parents. Chris was also doing well in his IT consultancy role. In 1997, Chris had taken on a major role in the production of The King and I, when he got friendly with another of the leading men, a guy called Nick Cupid. He and his wife, 24-year-old Jenny, had two very young children, and the two couples became friendly, often socialising with each other at each other's houses. Jenny was very physically attractive, and she knew it. An ex-hairdresser, she wasn't selected for any of the big roles at the society, and was firmly in the chorus line, but she had quite a high opinion of herself, and was convinced that everyone was envious of her blonde hair, her pretty face, and her slim figure. A friend of hers said, With Jenny, everything was just perfect, or it wasn't. If she didn't get just what she wanted, when she wanted it, then you would know about it. Even when she married Nick, it was as though she was in love with the wedding and all the show rather than Nick. She looked absolutely beautiful on the day, but everybody had to match. Her flowers matched the bridesmaids' dresses, Nick's waistcoat matched both, and her daughter, Laura Rose, had to have her own silk wedding outfit. Sounds expensive, doesn't it? It was one of those days where everything looked right and everything was done just right, but you wondered where they went from there. Like all the clubs we belong to in our communities, the society also had a strong social side. After shows and rehearsals, many of the cast would head to the nearby Bowling Green Hotel for a drink or two, and lots of social trips were arranged to watch shows all over the country. And the two couples made a trip to London in January 1997. But even before they went on this trip, 
Jenny Cupid had made it very clear to Chris Leinecker that she wanted to be much more than friends. And it was on this trip that their affair began. It's a story as old as time itself, isn't it? Chris Leinecker was flattered by the attention from the pretty younger woman. And for a man who had a thing about risky sex and pornography, he found Jenny's willingness to play out all his fantasies very exciting. The couple met at least once a week for sex, not just at each other's houses when their partners were out, but also at Jenny's parents, in a forest nearby, in the highly romantic venue of a multi-storey car park in Blackpool, living the dream, and in woods near Alton Towers. But Chris wasn't happy just with having sex, he wanted to take their sessions so he could watch and enjoy them back in his own time, so they started filming themselves. But this then progressed into filming threesomes. Look, I'm no prude, okay? But shockingly to me, on one occasion, this threesome was with Chris's own brother-in-law and it was filmed, which would, I think, put a different slant on the family Christmas lunch when you ask him to pass the sprouts. But even more extraordinary was a threesome they had with Jenny's husband at their home while their children slept upstairs. And in January 1998, Chris Leinecker had arranged another threesome, this time with one of Jenny's female friends. But this had to be cancelled, as it was on this very day that Chris's wife, Catherine, gave birth to their second child, Holly. Sadly, it's a true crime podcast, so it isn't all about happy endings. And as we so often hear about affairs on this podcast, The strength of feeling was not equal on both sides and that caused problems. Jenny Cupid madly was in love with Chris Lanaker and thought that by doing everything that Chris wanted to do, he would leave his wife and the pair could start a new life together in Canada. But this wasn't on Chris's agenda, not for one moment. He enjoyed his comfortable middle-class life with his wife and his children they also enjoy this exciting affair. He once wrote to Jenny saying, Yes, I have everything, a perfect family, but that doesn't stop me loving you. What we have is special. We've shared almost every sexual experience together and I can't imagine life without you. But Chris was increasingly worried about Jenny as he could see how much she wanted them to be together She was intense, she was passionate, and he could see how jealous she was of his wife, as she was the person that Chris was with, the person he spent his weekends with, he spent his evenings with. And Chris was happy with his life. He was desperate that it wasn't ruined by his wife finding out about his seedy affair. And also he was increasingly concerned that Jenny may self-harm. The situation had gone from something that was fun and enjoyable to something much, much more serious. Not that this stopped Chris from continuing to have sex with Jenny. And he didn't seem to have any real guilt in what he was doing. On the 13th of April 1998, he and his wife celebrated the christening of their two children. And just days later, on the 16th of April, he was having sex with Jenny in a pub car park. As he drove home to his wife that evening, Chris had no idea that this would be the last time he would ever have sex with Jenny. The next day, Jenny asked her in-laws to babysit her children, 
and she headed off to Asda for her usual grocery shop. As well as her vegetables, her toilet rolls and all the other bits, she bought a glass bottle and a £3 kitchen knife. From there, she headed over to the house where Catherine and Chris lived. Catherine let her in. She was home with her four-month-old baby, Holly. Jenny, in full view of the baby, went for Catherine with the glass bottle, smashing her eight times over the head. Bewildered and on the edge of consciousness, Catherine staggered into the lounge where Jenny followed her and stabbed her with the kitchen knife in the back. She thrust the knife into her so deeply and so savagely that it snapped as it hit the spine. Not finished, Jenny then stabbed Catherine in the stomach, piercing her liver and major arteries. There was blood absolutely everywhere as Catherine died on the floor of her lounge at her home. She was just 33 years old. There was no remorse from Jenny after this most violent of acts. She didn't suddenly come to and think, what have I done? Instead, it was two hours later when she hysterically called the emergency services, sobbing, it was my best friend. And then she called her parents-in-law, Roy and Barbara Cupid, who arrived to find her covered in blood and cradling baby Holly rocking on the floor. When the emergency services arrived soon after, Jenny fainted, she dropped to the floor. But this wasn't fooling the paramedics. They'd seen all of this before. The lead paramedic later said, The young girl dropped to the floor. It was as if she was acting. It was done to prevent herself from hurting herself as she fell. The girl's eyes were closed and she was deliberately holding them shut. I said to get back on her feet and she got up and walked to the ambulance. When questioned, Jenny said she'd been trying to protect her friend Catherine from a skinhead who forced his way into the house. She described a 19-year-old man with a shaven head wearing a brown jacket saying, He forced his way into the house and told me to get back in. He shut the door and pushed the knife into Kathy. I tried to stop him and he cut my right hand. But this story didn't hold for long. As the police found bloody footwear marks leading into the playroom at the house and there was also clear evidence that attempts had been made to wipe away substances from the fridge and the bench in the kitchen. And the blue bottle she'd used in the attack was the next day found in the bin bag outside Catherine's home. Jenny was arrested on suspicion of murder. It was now that she changed her story, admitting that she had killed Catherine, but it had been in self-defence. She told how Catherine had discovered the affair and attacked her, and she had killed her in self-defence. She kept on saying she hated me, Jenny said. She hated me for being so thin and so popular. Then I just grabbed hold of the knife and it slipped and went into her. Detectives didn't believe a word of it and Jenny Cupid stood trial for murder at Chester Crown Court. She pleaded guilty of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility and denied murdering Catherine. Giving evidence, Chris Laneker told he was at first hesitant about starting an affair. Generally, I didn't think it was a good idea that we got involved because of the circumstances. He said he made it clear that he would not leave his wife. I made it very clear from the word go that that was never going to be an option. 
The jury read an unposted note from Jenny to Chris, which seemed to suggest that she'd accepted that he was not going to start a new life with her. It said, As for the question, do you love me more than Kathy? I should be really hurt, but because my love for you is so strong I can cope with it. So quite what caused Jenny to choose to kill Catherine on that April day is unclear. Just why had she snapped? Dr John Hood, a police surgeon who examined Jenny at Warrington Hospital, said that she was not suffering any symptoms of mental illness. He told how in June 1993, soon after the birth of her youngest child, she had developed bulimia and was treated with Prozac by her GP until November 1997. He added that Mrs Cupid stated for the previous six months she had felt quite well. The jury had written evidence from Jenny's grandma, who described her granddaughter as happy-go-lucky until she developed the bulimia. She said she was also told that Jenny had been attacked while leaving a rehearsal of the theatre group and this too had affected her. It was heard that she had suffered from depression and on one occasion had actually tried to take her own life. But on the sixth day of the trial, Jenny Cupid changed her plea to guilty of murder. Sentencing her to life in prison, the judge addressed the sobbing Jenny. He told her, I accept you've had problems in life, but it's extremely difficult to believe all that you have said. You are a serial liar. Your problems are no worse than those of hundreds of fellow human beings who have not behaved as you did. At the 11th hour, you have accepted your total responsibility for this dreadful killing. No one could fail to feel utter revulsion and disgust at your lifestyle and that of others in your social circle. You must now face reality and not fanciful inventions. You took the life of a blameless and talented woman of 33. The killing was totally premeditated and perpetrated in front of her four-month-old daughter. You have left Kathy Lanika's two children without their mum, as well as your own children without their mother for a very long time. Like Kathy, those four children are totally innocent, and because of what you did, their lives are irreversibly damaged. Goodness knows how they will react when they learned fully of what happened on that day. What you did was an absolute outrage. You killed a good woman out of lust for her husband and jealousy for her. Chris Lanika, who left court without comment out of a side door of his parents, watched impassively as the defence counsel made a plea of mitigation before sentencing. He accused Chris of locking a frightened young woman into a highly dangerous relationship. Disaster but not necessarily this disaster, must have been foreseen on his part, but he made no attempt to end it. He encouraged her in relation to pornography, to sexual aids and to sexual practices, which given this defendant's vulnerability, you may feel was wholly inappropriate. He degraded her, and he used her. Outside court, Catherine's dad, Kenneth, said he was satisfied the outcome had shown that his daughter was an innocent victim. Of Jenny, he said he didn't feel hatred, incomprehension. We cannot understand how one person could do this to another, 
particularly someone who only wanted to help. And Catherine's twin, Fiona, said, Cathy and I were best friends. We've shared so many experiences over 33 years. I still find it hard. I just want to pick up the phone and talk to her. And I have to remind myself that she's not there. We were so close and we shared so many things. The hardest thing is she just understood the way I felt. I didn't need to tell her. She would just know. We shared the same sense of humour. She is irreplaceable. Her dad, Kenneth, said he would make sure their two grandchildren grew up knowing what a wonderful mum they had. We would tell them about their mother's childhood, about the scrap she got into, about her love of children, about her love of teaching, and about how much she loved them. Kathy wanted them to be happy and content as she was. She would have wanted to pass on to them her love of life and her sense of humour, her ability to relate to people, and her honesty. After the trial, Jenny's husband Nick told how he just wanted to rebuild his life and to take care of his two children. He offered his sympathies, as you might expect, to Catherine's parents. But the next bit is, I think, a strange one. See what you make of it. He insisted he knew nothing about his wife Jenny's 16-month affair with Chris Lineker. But he did admit to taking part in a threesome with his wife and Chris in November 1997. But he said this was just an isolated incident and he strongly regretted it. He also insisted that this session, if that's the correct word, was not videotaped. I guess the relationship was an open one, and hey, what happens in the marriages of others is none of our business. We don't want to know, right? If he was happy to join his wife and Chris, that was their business. But to say he knew nothing of the affair, I wonder. Anyway, let's fast forward 20 odd years. His children are now grown up. His ex-wife is probably out of prison. She was due for parole in 2011, I think. I wonder how those relationships are all working now. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's quite difficult reading how the tabloid press dealt with this murder, I think. Jenny Cupid was, as we know, convicted of murder. But you can probably imagine how she was referred to as a bed-hopping, sex-mad and all this stuff. And yet, to me, Chris Lineker was treated so, so differently. A man who christened both his children just five days before the murder was given a completely different treatment to Jenny. Of course, he did not kill his wife, but the tabloids don't explore in any detail what the defence barrister refers to as his heavy responsibility for the events that led to his wife's murder. I wonder how he has managed to cope with the murder of his wife and what discussions he has had with his children about it. Of course, although he must feel guilt, he was not the person responsible for the murder. That was just one person, Jenny Cupid. And how do you feel about her? Do you feel any sympathy at all for Jenny? I do to an extent. Was she used, as the judge said? But that sympathy stops on the day that she killed Catherine. I don't understand it. Why not just split with her lover when she realised that he wasn't going to leave his wife? Why kill her? And then what of Catherine? 
She had suspected Jenny of liking her husband, but when she asked her husband about it, he laughed it off, reassuring her that it was her that he wanted. And tragically, she believed him, and probably only discovered the terrible truth about the affair in those last terrifying moments just before she died. We must, as always, finish this podcast by expressing our deepest sympathy for the family and friends of Catherine, who had to suffer not just the pain of her death, but the knowledge that all the memories they would have made together were snatched away from them by Jenny Cupid. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story and any other aspect of UK True Crime, join the almost 85,000 of us on the Facebook group. Just search UK True Crime. And to support the show, please head to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash UK True Crime. Loads of bonus episodes and other exclusive content. And please don't forget to book tickets for my show in Manchester in October with Paul from the True Crime Enthusiast and Mike from Murder Mile. It's at the Retro Bar in Manchester. You can get tickets on almost social media outlets. It's going to be a great night. Okay, so that's all for me for another week. So until we speak again on Tuesday of next week, please do take it easy. Always take it easy. And despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now.